please turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It does seem like it has been a long time when I had the opportunity to be here with you for a number of consecutive Sundays, and then I, I don't see you for weeks. It does seem like a long time. But we're thankful to God for the opportunity to worship God together and to open his holy word. I'm just going to read the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, hopefully you remember, at least in some way, that we have been going through 1 Corinthians. A little section at a time and this morning. Our portion is in verses 1 through 4. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Well, let's once again, well, before we, before we do pray, just want to remind you of the, of the context and the setting that we have seen already at the beginning of chapter 2. Paul was telling these believers that his ministry had been very simple and basic. I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then, in, uh, so it was, it was the gospel of Christ which Paul was presenting, but in, in its most simple and basic form. In verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul informed them that he was able to speak what is truly wisdom. Never least the gospel of Christ. But there is a basic presentation. And then in verse 6, he says, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, or nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. And Paul spoke these things, this wisdom, as he says in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Now we have received not the spirit of the world. It's not worldly wisdom. It's not worldly cliches. But the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So, Paul now is confronting the Corinthian Christians as a faithful minister must and will with their dangerous immaturity. Let's now ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. O oh, our Father, we thank you for the truths of your holy word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the revelation of your character as the eternal God given to us throughout your Bible. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, our God, for condescending to hear us when we confess our sins and seek your mercy. We always need it, Father. We are never 
at a place where we don't need to be humbled before you. But as we have often prayed in these days, come and visit us. Come and speak to us. Make your word clear to us in order that we may receive it and obey it and trust and serve you. Please hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, a little bit later in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul exhorts these Christians in this language. Let no man glory in men. It was a, an exhortation which was much needed among the Corinthians. And there are many reasons why we should never glorify or glory in men. To raise our minds to glory in men indicates that we have nothing better to glory in. So if we are glorying in men, it's a huge problem for us. We have nothing better to do with our lips and with our hearts. To glory in men indicates that we are spiritually weak and sick. And that's the condition of these Corinthians. That's what Paul's trying to show them. Let no one glory in men. To glory in men indicates that our abilities of judgment are seriously impaired. When we raise men up and glory in men, our judgment is very poor. To glory in men indicates that we value our fellow men too highly. That's why Paul says to these Corinthians, let no one glory in men. We ought to have God as the one who has our highest esteem, the object of our greatest admiration. These are the problems of the Corinthian Christians. There are more problems as well, but what we have already uncovered points us in the right direction as we seek to understand what Paul's writing to them. And in verses 1 through 4, Paul puts his finger on their dangerous immaturity, which manifests itself in their glorying in men. So we'll consider this morning these four verses, and the first thing we want to look at is the early ministry of Paul to the Corinthian Christians, verses 1 up to the middle of verse 2. Now, I'll probably spend more time on this than any other point this morning. Uh, it, it needs to be. So he, he talks to them, first of all, about his early ministry among them, when he had first gone to Corinth and began to preach the gospel. And the thing that he, he does there at, in the first couple of verses, the first verse and a half, is he speaks about his inability. Sometimes people have too a high an opinion of men because they don't realize the limitations that we have. All of us, all of us have limitations. And that's what Paul says. Notice how it puts it. I'm reading in my New American Standard. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. So this is Paul's inability and as a matter of fact, Paul is emphatic about his inability. Uh, he says, there's an emphasis on the word I. Uh, the way that the apostles wrote in Greek, they could 
use a verb without a without a, a subject, uh, without a pronoun. Paul could take one simple Greek word and it means I. I, I could not, but he, he adds a pronoun in order to emphasize his inability. I, even I, even me, he says, I couldn't do this. Paul could not minister to them by treating them as mature Christians. That's what Paul is saying. And it's important to see the way that Paul evaluates these members of the Corinthian church. Because it's going to be the manner in which he ministers to them. The whole letter in 1 Corinthians has this character. It's the way Paul sees these men. And remember, again, without exalting himself over much, Paul is able to say, as and in this letter, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. So it's not that Paul was unskilled, but there are certain things a minister cannot do for you. I, I, I debated to myself, should I, should I really say that? Well, yes. You might, you might think, well, the pastor's here to solve all my problems. The pastor has a kind of a spiritual magic wand that can draw out for me everything he needs to know and everything I need to hear. Well, actually, there are some things a minister can't do for you. In one sense, a minister's job is to impart spiritual understanding. But that depends on the Holy Spirit. It's a limit to what your minister can do to you. Well, Paul, as he evaluates these the, the members of the church at Corinth, he uses four adjectives, four adjectives in this context and uh, children, you say, well, Brother Frank, what in the world is an adjective? Well, I'll tell you. An adjective describes. Adjectives describe. Um, for example, if I talk about a tall child, that adjective tall describes the child. It tells you what's, what that child is like. Or if you say it's a, that's a good child, you know, the word good is an adjective, and it describes the conduct, maybe the physical health of the child. Or if we talk about a hungry child, those are adjectives. They describe the child. That's what an adjective is. So when you go to your English class, if you want to impress your teacher and you haven't gotten to adjectives yet, uh, there you have it. Now you know what an adjective is. But Paul uses various adjectives. And the first adjective he uses, actually, he he denies this adjective applies to the Corinthians. It's spiritual. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. So there's an adjective, and Paul says, I can't, I can't speak to you, Corinthians, as though you were this. Why not? Well, there were two other adjectives that Paul uses to describe the Corinthian Christians. And this tells us something about why Paul had to deal with them as he did. But why not then? Because he uses the word carnal. He uses the word carnal. You see that in your text or some, uh, I, I didn't look too much at the King James like I normally do. 
right? He says, I could not speak to you as to spiritual women, but to, my version says, as to men of flesh, as to carnal men. Not spiritual. He says, they're carnal men. And the, but he, he adds another description right away. And it's very interesting how Paul gathers these descriptions of the Corinthian members. And it's, it's, it's not every single member, but it's, it's most of the members. Paul's not saying there were a couple of people who had this problem. It's a big problem at Corinth. And the other, so he says, you're not spiritual, you are carnal. But then he adds another one. Infants in Christ. Now, does that strike you? How does Paul say you're carnal, but you're infants in Christ? I think what Paul is trying to do is he's trying not to say too much. He wants them, I'll put it this way, Paul's alarmed. Paul's alarmed with the Corinthians. These are not good things that are happening at Corinth. But Paul doesn't want to, that, to tell them, look, close up shop. Forget it. You know, write Ichabod over the door. No glory. That's not what Paul wants to do. And so he says, you're not spiritual, but you are, you are carnal. And you are baked in Christ. Infants in Christ. And just to say, in Christ means salvation. That's, that's salvation. Salvation is not about essentially what I can do, but what Christ has done for me. And that will manifest itself in the kind of person I'm going to be for sure, but the root is Christ. So, Paul calls these Corinthian Christians infants, babes in Christ. Now, he doesn't mean that they're three years old or younger. It's not what Paul is trying to say when he calls them infants in Christ. Um, Paul doesn't believe in uh, infant baptism. He doesn't believe in infant church membership. He doesn't uh, believe in what the what is called pedo communion, where little children receive the Lord's Supper. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's talking about what they were after they had first repented and believed. When Paul came, he says, I did preach the gospel to you, and you became infants in Christ. They're infants, but they are still in Christ. And it's interesting, because Peter uses a different word in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. You may remember that text where Paul tells the, uh, Peter, I'm sorry, Peter tells the Christians spread throughout Asia Minor, he says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. It's a different word for babies there, uh, infants. Uh, but again, that's the word that Peter uses. And he, he uses it in reference to the entirety of the churches to whom he's writing. Well, we all start as babies. We all start with babies. It would be monstrous for a woman to give birth to a full-grown man. I, actually, it's a verse like that in the Bible somewhere. Uh, but it, it's uh, obviously symbolic, not literal. We start in the world as babies. That's true naturally. Uh, 
you know, we, you, you've, you've had over the years a couple of babies born in this place, and you see them, and they, they're small, very young, very limited. Same thing happens spiritually. When we are born again, we are infants in Christ. And so, they are, there, there are these important adjectives that Paul uses. He says, you're not spiritual, you're carnal, you're babes. He, he has another adjective that he uses in the context to describe certain people, and he calls them natural. All the way back in chapter 2 and verse 14, he tells us what he means by a natural man. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The natural man, Paul's language, is the unconverted man. He has no perception of the things of God. And the infant in Christ has some understanding of the things of the gospel. He knows he's a sinner. He knows that he must confess his sin, as we saw in Psalm 32 this morning. The, the, the infant in Christ knows this much, that his whole hope is found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul has these various adjectives. I've listed for you four of them in the context he does not call the Corinthian Christians natural men. He does not call them spiritual men. He says they are not spiritual men but because they are carnal and they are infants in Christ. Very interesting that Paul also uses this word carnal to describe himself. In Romans 7.14, Paul is recounting his struggles with sin. He says, the things that I don't want to do, I do them. The things that I want to do, I don't do them, at least sometimes. And Paul calls himself carnal because of his continued struggle with remaining sin. It is an excellent sign of Paul's humility that he's willing to write those things about himself. Well, it would be proper in that sense, I don't know if you would apply that word carnal to yourself. But when I read that Romans 7, 14 and following, I find my own spiritual experience there. Again, Paul says these believers are not spiritual. He doesn't mean they're unconverted. Why? Because they are infants in Christ. And you don't need a seminary degree to know that infants in Christ are still in Christ. Peter's instruction to them is not to be converted, but to long for the pure milk of the word, that they may grow thereby spiritually. And we will find that Paul says more about these church members in other places in 1 Corinthians. You, Well, very quickly, if you go back to chapter 1, where we've been before, and look at verses 4 through 8. Notice what Paul says about this church. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, 
blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul would not say that about natural, unconverted men, but he says that about the Corinthians later on in chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. He continues to say things about these Corinthian Christians. And you might be surprised to say, they're carnal. How can Paul say that about them? Well, uh, that's what Paul, this is what Paul says. That's the way he speaks in the, in the first, uh, first chapter. And then in chapter 6, starting in verse 9, he says this. Do you not know? You Corinthians ought to know. You surely do know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? And that's the crazy mixed up world, as our pastor said, that we live in. But notice the very next words. But such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. So you have that introductory little paragraph in chapter one. You have this statement in chapter six. Paul's not withdrawing this. He's not striking any of these things out with the black magic marker because he realizes now, well, these are unconverted people. They're immature believers. And don't make a mistake. Immature believers at a certain point are in a dangerous state. That's why I call this dangerous immaturity. Now we have to dig into this, the way that Paul describes these Christians as we get started in, the, in this chapter. These people are mature, immature believers. And what Paul is saying here is that he had to, he had to minister to them in a way that suited their immature state. We'll go up to in chapter uh, in our in our verse here, chapter three, verse two a. He said, "I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it." They were immature. They were infantile, and. What Paul is saying here is that he had to minister to them in a way that suited their immature state. So Paul is speaking to them about his early ministry in Corinth up to verse 2a. So that's his inability. He couldn't speak to them as mature. He couldn't speak to them as spiritual. They were infants. And, of course, that's what infants are expected to be, infants. But then, besides his inability, he speaks of his necessity. His necessity. Paul had to minister them on a very simple level. He had to use smaller words. He had to stop and define his words like I did with adjectives because I say to myself, well, all of these adults know what adjectives are. Ha. That's, a, that's kind of the tongue-in-cheek thing to say because sometimes... Uh, it's interesting, though English is our language, yet uh, we don't necessarily know our grammar all that well. But, uh, but Paul says he had to speak to them in a very simple letter, level, small words. Uh, he had to speak about what was more clearly observed, least challenging to the thought processes. And Paul's not the first man who 
crafted his ministry to the intellectual level of his hearers. Jesus did this in the upper room in John 16, 12. He says, and this is after three years with Jesus. Jesus says to them, I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. See? So Jesus understood this. There, is, there are times when we would like to know certain things, but we're not ready. We're not mature enough. It is a real blessing when God gives us pastors who understand our state and are willing to speak to us on our level. We should thank God for this. So Paul takes, talks about his inability. He speaks about his uh, necessity. And now he speaks about their condition. He tells us of their condition. Why? Why? Well, they are infants. They are babies. And uh, one of the commentators I read points out, this is not bad. Again, you, you get a little baby. When a little child is born into a family, almost instantly the baby becomes a favorite. Everybody is interested in what the baby needs and what the baby does. And so, it wasn't bad that when Paul first went and preached the gospel to them, that they were infants in Christ. It's natural. But that, so that's the first thing, the early ministry of Paul to these Corinthian Christians, verses 1 and 2a. Secondly, the present condition of the Corinthian Christians. And here's where the danger comes in. In verse, the middle of verse 2 to the middle of verse 3, the present condition of the Corinthian Christians. In your Bible, it says this. You are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. This is the present condition of the Corinthian Christians. It's a very dangerous thing. They still needed the same Kind of ministry, a ministry suited to their immaturity. Now, up to verse 2a, it's not, it's not really a criticism that when they were first born again, they were spiritual babies. That's, that's natural, as I've said. But now, Paul begins a direct reproof. He has softened it lawfully and appropriately in the first part when he said, okay, when I first came and I preached to you, I preached in a very simple manner because you needed that. You were babies. But now, now the problem is you are now not yet able. It's been years. It's like the writer to Hebrews says. That's why I had I asked Pastor Tate to read that Hebrews passage. Because like the writer to Hebrews, the Apostle Paul see something alarmingly unnatural in the Corinthian Christians. Alarmingly. It's dangerous. The writer said, by this time, in Hebrews 5, you ought to be teachers, but you have need for someone else to teach you the elementary principles, the ABCs of the gospel, as if you didn't know it. You see, and Paul is very alarmed. 
That's why he uses that strong language in verse 1. I could not speak to you as the spiritual man, but as the carnal, as the infants in Christ. So Paul makes a direct reproof now. Now here's where you are. That's where you were. Now this is what you are. You still need the same kind of ministry. A ministry to your immaturity. These believers needed it. Think about the job of a parent. And Paul is like a wise parent. He, said, he says that about himself to his people, right? He tells them, I became your father in the gospel. And he says, I became like a nursing mother to you, consumed with your needs. But think about a, a parent raising a real child. Now, a parent might wish that the first time he or she taught their child some important lesson, that the child would instantly understand it, receive it, and remember it. That's not realistic. That's not what children are like. The parent might say, don't talk to strangers. And then they, they, they happen to see them someplace and they're talking to a perfect stranger. And they have to say it again. Don't talk to strangers. Didn't I tell you just last week, don't talk to strangers. Or they say, don't play with matches. Now, there are some of us who are like a moth. The glow of a match on fire is fascinating. So the parent doesn't, can't say just once, don't play with matches, and then they never play with matches again, right? And for some of you, like me, were children at one time, and you were told don't play with matches, how many times did you have to be told? How many times did you have to be told, don't listen to just any old preacher? Be discriminating. And I, I don't know. I've been here at City View for how many years now? A long time, sir. And Pastor Tate has had to tell us many, many times. Watch out who you listen to. Watch out what you're imbibing. Well, this is what you have to do with children. It's the task of parents to repeat Good, necessary instructions many times. Many times. Uh, this is what faithful parents do. And the more likely a child is to forget or ignore our instructions, the more diligent a parent must be. And that's what, the way your parents were. My mom was like that. Right? Didn't your parents say to you, if I told you once, my mother said this all the time, I told you a thousand times, and it may literally have been a thousand times she had to tell me. It's not too surprising. When you find a child or children are not getting the point, you know what happens? Your instructions must become more frequent and more urgent that they're playing with matches. So I told you, don't touch them. Don't play with them. Don't hide them away. Don't do it. Well, if you find them continuing to do it, you have to, you have to raise the bar. You have to raise your voice. You have to be more urgent. You see this in the book of Proverbs, an inspired instruction manual for parents. How many times does Solomon repeat the same instructions to his children? He varies it, but the same things come up again and again. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom and in all your 
acquiring, get understanding. Seeker is silver, search for her as for hidden treasure. Solomon does it again and again and again. So Paul tells these Christians that their immaturity now, it's not like the immaturity when they were first born again. The immaturity now is dangerous and they need to come along. And so the very the very condition of these Christians requires a ministry suited to their dangerous immaturity. And this is why Paul calls them carnal. We're going to move to the third because that's where, that's where Paul really pulls back the curtain on this dangerous immaturity. And he proves what he's saying is true. The clear evidence of their condition, verse 3b to 4. Middle of verse 3. Actually, just after the first little thing, he says you're still fleshly. You're still carnal. You're still in the same, locked in the same dangerous immaturity. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? So what Paul does is he proves his point. He's not trying to be mean. I think sometimes people think when someone tells them about them that they're being mean. How can I say this? If you're a liar, I'm not saying anybody here is, but I'm just using it as an illustration, okay? If someone's a liar, what do you tell them? You tell them, oh, you're a really honest person and we really, we really think highly of you. We trust you. No, you're a liar. You see, this, it's not mean. Just like it wasn't mean when Jesus said to the Pharisees, hypocrites, whitewashed sepulchers, you know. Nobody else would tell them the truth. But Jesus wouldn't hold back. He wasn't being mean. He was being faithful and gracious. That's what they needed. And this is what Paul does. He brings solid evidence. As it were, he asks them to deny it. You see how it puts it in the, in the text? It's, it's in question form. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? And when you say, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paul, so are you not mere men? You see what Paul does? He, he, he asks arm-twisting questions. Paul's questions are nothing other than bold assertions of their desperate, needy, immature state. That's what Paul's doing. Paul wants them to perceive their own conduct. It's a conduct that's bad for everyone. It does not glorify God at all. And so Paul asked them very bluntly, and he's proving his point. He's proving his point. And the problem with the Corinthians is they didn't get it. They didn't get it. It's, it's, again, I'll use my child uh, analogy, right? The child analogy, because... Uh, there are children here, so we have a we have some living illustrations. It's like a child 
whose parent says, please clean up your room, take the dirty clothes, throw them in the hamper, put the toys away, make the bed. And the child comes out of the room and says, I, I, I'm done, mommy, can I go outside and play? And she goes and looks and, no, no, your bed's not made right. No, all your toys aren't put away. No, some of the clothes are still under your bed. See? And the child thinks, I'm, I'm doing fine. It's like, a, um, it's like Saul, after the conquest of some of the enemies of God, but he spares the best, right? He says, you're, <laughs> you're our pastor. What does he say to Samuel when he comes? You are blessed of the Lord. I have done the will of the Lord. Samuel says, what is this sound of bleeding in my ear? Why do I hear this bang? Bah! What's going on here? Uh, Saul's blind. He says, I've done what the Lord did. The Lord sent me on a mission. I've done it. So what Paul's doing is he wants them to see. He wants them to see. And sometimes again, your pastor, I've witnessed it many times, he's telling you bluntly, clearly, what you need to hear. Well, here's, here's what Paul does. He has a general question. A general question. He talks about their disposition. He says, since there is jealousy and strife among you, these are the evidences. You go to the church, and it's not like everybody's out in the foyers. They come in and greeting, saying, nice to see you. Glad you could be here today. Uh, we're hoping the Lord will come and bless us. No. There are mean looks. There is animosity. There's opposition. There's jealousy. <laughs> you see, they're afraid that their judgment of their great teachers, I'm a Paul, you know? I, I know Paul, and let me tell you, his doctrine is straight. That man can tell the truth, and you need to listen to him. Yeah, but I, I, I really prefer Apollos. He's more of the intellectual kind, you know? He really knows the scriptures like few people know them. And you know what it is? It's not that they're worried about Apollos. They're not worried about Paul. They're worried about themselves. That's why they're jealous. It's not that Paul's jealous of Apollos or Apollos of jealous. It's jealous of Paul. It's their jealousy of their own selves. And that's what causes strife. Because if you feel like your opinion is not being heard properly, then you're going you're gonna to argue about it. Paul says, look, this is, this is what's going on. There's jealousy and strife among you. Our sinful inclination is that we can tell ourselves we're rightly jealous when we are wrongly jealous. That's what Paul's trying to tell them. And this is the way men of the world act. That's why Paul says you're mere men. You're acting like mere men in this particular issue because there are put-downs and there are accusations and there are needless disagreements. These are the works of the flesh. They cause sinful antagonism. And all you have to do is read James 3.14. Or Galatians 5, 19 and 20, where the works of the flesh are denominated by Paul, including strife and jealousy. So I guess one of the things we should be asking, we might be too, too delicate, 
too polite to be telling our brethren how ignorant they are and how wrong they are, but it may be there in the heart. So, the actual manifestation and party divisions. That's what Paul's saying. He's telling them what's going on in them, and he's telling them about these actual party divisions. The champion, Paul, Apollos, was used for selfish ends. That's why in the opening of the letter, in chapter 1, verse 11, Paul tells them that I have this news from Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So it's breaking out in words, breaking out in looks. It's almost as if these people are a society of men and not a, a, a temple of God. And this is the fruit of dangerous pride. Dangerous pride. Dangerous, immature pride. Matthew Henry has a wonderful statement on this part of his commentary. He writes this. Pride commonly li lies at the bottom of these quarrels. Self-conceit contributes very much to our immoderate esteem of our teachers as well as ourselves. Our commendation of our own taste and judgment commonly goes along with our unreasonable applause and always with a factious adherence to one teacher in opposition to others that may be equally faithful and well-qualified. And this is one of the reasons why I feel a little bit nervous when people start telling me what a good preacher I am. I was at a, I was actually at uh, Pastor Lush's church last week, and one of the ladies and a couple of the men were telling me what a good job I did. And I was reminded of, of well, it's a joke, yeah, uh, where the preacher was approached by somebody and said, that was a great sermon. He said, I know, Satan already told me. I get nervous. You can tell me. You know, you can tell me that it's good or that it's bad. I'll try to take it in stride. One of my trainers, when I was in the academy, he told me, he told us all, he said, don't get too excited when people compliment you. And if you don't get too excited when they compliment you, you won't get too upset when they criticize you. Okay, well, I have set before you my exposition of verses 1 through 4, in which Paul tells them about his need, how he had to minister to them at first, and then their dangerous immaturity, so that he had to continue that kind of a ministry to them. And then he gives the evidence, and he asks him, Okay, now, you tell me. I tell you this. This is what's happening. You tell me. Is this good? Or are you not just walking like a man? Well, how do we, how do we, what do we bring home with us about this? Well, Paul uses this word carnal. And the first thing I want you to see is that what Paul, the way Paul describes Christians is far from the heresy that is called the carnal Christian theory. It's true, Paul regarded the church as containing Christians at various stages of development, requiring particular treatment. 
That's not what's taught today. Paul's dealing with a specific carnal attitude and conduct in the church, and it was very bad, very dangerous. But Paul still regarded the church as, as containing genuine Christians, and this is not what's being taught today when people talk about carnal Christians. You get that? The idea of the carnal Christian heresy is this, that some Christians progress and grow, and they grow from little children to young men and women, and then to old men and women. They grow up to maturity naturally. But some genuine Christians, say those uh, proponents of the carnal Christian theory, who never go beyond infancy, they never go beyond they They're genuinely converted, but they never grow at all. They say there is a, a class of Christians who are so marked by sin that they are indistinguishable from the converted. And the teaching is set forth that while some live a far better life of discipleship, of a higher life, of the spirit-filled life, other Christians do not develop much at all. Some do not develop at all. They forever live in a state of spiritual infancy. They are unconverted converted people. And if you say, oh, Brother Frank, that doesn't make any sense. That's, that's the truth. It doesn't make any sense. But this is the heresy of the carnal Christian theory. And you might think, well, hmm, Brother Frank's been around a while. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. Maybe he doesn't. Well, how about John MacArthur? I want to read to you a little bit from his book, very fine book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And this is what he says, chapter 8. This willingness to accommodate so-called carnal Christians has driven some contemporary teachers to define the terms of salvation so loosely that virtually every profession of faith in Christ is regarded as the real thing. Anyone says, who says he has accepted Christ is enthusiastically received as a Christian, even if his opposed faith later gives way to per, a persistent pattern of disobedience, gross sin, or hostile unbelief. This is John Ruther. I'm sorry, this is, John, yes, John Ruther would say the same, but John MacArthur. He says, one anti-lordship writer perfectly distills the utter absurdity of his own view. It is possible, quoting this teacher, it is possible, even probable, that when a believer out of fellowship falls for certain types of philosophy, if he is a logical thinker, he will become an unbelieving believer. Yet, believers who become agnostics are still saved. They are still born again. You can even become an atheist. But if you once accept Christ as Savior, you cannot lose your salvation, even though you deny God. And Dr. MacArthur says this is a damning lie. He's not cursing. He's telling the truth. This type of teaching exists. You, you doubt it, but it exists. And Paul does not tell us that, he, that he's encountering such in the church here. But he tells us what should be done when you have people like that. People who engage in gross immorality of incest in 1 Corinthians 5. Get them out of the church. They don't belong. You excommunicate them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
Paul says what's to be done with them. They are not to be regarded as brethren. They're not, they're not, they're not even, they're not even carnal in the sense that the Corinthians are. They're unconverted, they're natural men. So what the writer tells us, to tell, right, right to the Hebrews tells us that some do not make the progress they should, and they may yet be true Christians, they are not to be thought of as in grave danger. They are to be thought of, I'm sorry, as in grave danger, but the teachers of the carnal Christian heresy teach that there's a class of true Christians in the church who have a right to be there and a right to our charitable judgment who make no progress. And the verses that they give to prove these things are 1 Corinthians chapter 3, along with sloppy handling of God's word. One wonders why people want to say that there are people who are so ungodly who are genuine Christians. It's there conscience telling them, oh man, you know what? You're not that much different from these people. You're doing the same kind of things. Only nobody knows. This teaching is very dangerous. And you must reject it for a lot of reasons. Number one, it is not supported by the word of God. What the carnal Christian heresy is teaching is not found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's not there. Number two, it is dangerous to the souls of those who embrace it. It's dangerous for you to embrace this idea that you can be a carnal Christian in the full sense of that word. Not the way Paul uses it, but the way heretics use it. It's dangerous to your soul and it's dangerous to the souls of others. Suppose I didn't know you. And I came into this church. I'm a visitor. I don't think I, I don't think I belong in that category anymore. But imagine I was a visitor and I saw you folks. What would I conclude? If I regard you all as genuine Christians, say if I want to be a member of this church, I, I just need to be like these people. I don't need to be like Pastor Tate or Sister Marcel. No, they're exceptional. They don't think that, and I agree with them, but you see, people come in and they look at you. What do I need to be to be a member of this church? I need to be like you. You see. And if you're a carnal Christian, in the heretical sense of the term, you're giving people to think that they can be carnal and be regarded as true Christians. And you may be signing their ticket or punching their ticket to hell as well as your own. It's dangerous. It's damaging to the church of Jesus Christ. Very dangerous when men begin to justify rather than rebuke and challenge their sins. Thank God for a faithful ministry that confronts your sins and exposes your dangers. Let me ask you, what would you rather have? Would you rather be rocked asleep until you awake in hell? Or would you like to be, or would you prefer to be told to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and learn how to be a believing obedient disciple what result I think the answer is the choice is actually easy so that's the first thing 
I want to say by way of application, don't let people tell you that what you have in 1 Corinthians 3, 1-4 is to carnal Christian theory. It is not. The Corinthian Christians were in danger. Again, you should see, and we should think, about the hindrance the sins addressed here are. Jealousy, strife, the ambitious exaltation of men, even good men. Beware. Beware of jealousy and strife. Beware of that antagonistic attitude that says, okay, I, I know, and I think this is a good preacher because he agrees with me. Beware of these things because these things ruin souls and sometimes churches. As one of my pastors used to say, I could say now, I've lived long enough to see this happen. I've lived long enough for men to say, it was a guy. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. He used to say, I love Arthur Pink. No, I love Arthur Pink too. He's a very good writer, a great theologian. But he said, well, if you read Pink, you don't need to really read anything else. He was a one theologian man. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. Watch out for that disposition. And then, see what an awful influence self-centeredness is. Self-centeredness hinders Christians and it damns men. Some people think they are really high class spiritually, but they are self-centeredness. It's a fine line, right? Watch out for self-centeredness. And if you find these features in yourself that we have examined today from the Word of God, then you need to turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 51. And divulge your sins to the Lord. Tell the Lord, I'm a sinner. These are my sins. And I need you to heal my soul. The only safety for us is in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom I point you this day. Let's pray. Amen. Our Father and our God, we come to you this morning and we acknowledge that there is enough sin in us to destroy churches, to destroy our souls, and to point sinners not to Christ, but to sin. So we pray that you would forgive us for our sins. Open our eyes, Lord, to see where our sins really are. Help us to see. Help us not to just cover up in clever ways and say things which sound nice but help us to bring to you all of our sins and to confess them and to plead for the blood of Christ to wash o'er our souls that we may walk with you. Thank you again for the way in which you give us everything we need for life and godliness through our Savior. Please hear our prayers and do us much good by the word of God we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.